This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash freelancer show. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash freelancers and enter the freelancer show in the how did you hear about us section when signing up. This episode is sponsored by nerd.us. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your client's web applications? Nerd.us is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you and new signups or referrals come with a $100 discount or referral fee. To sign up, go to freelancershow.com slash nerd. That's freelancershow.com slash N-I-R-D and enter freelancer into the contact form for a discount. This week's episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 199 of The Freelancer Show. With me today is Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. And I'm Reuven Lerner. And this week, we are going to talk about remote consulting tools and techniques. So a lot of people who do consulting, especially people that I know, tend to do it not necessarily physically going to their clients, but working remotely, part or in full. And we got a question on our GitHub issues list. And by the way, if you have ideas for future shows, please, please, please submit suggestions. So Luca Ng, that's his username, said he wanted to know an episode on do us to do a, an episode on purely remote consulting, perhaps never meeting the customer face to face. So communications technologies and communications techniques, and then fundamentals there if it's you know not tangible and so on and so forth. So. Philip, we started to talk just before uh, recording here. You do a, a fair bit of remote work, yeah? Just a little bit, yeah. Uh, exactly 100% of my clients are remote. Since I sort of uh, rebooted my consulting practice about two years ago, I've had a few clients, well, shoot, maybe one. Actually, I've had one client local ever since that reboot. But prior to that, I did work with local clients. But now, yeah, I work 100% remotely with clients and I've had a few interesting exceptions, like had a client in San Francisco. They were technically remote because I live about an hour and a half drive away from San Francisco. So, uh, but I happened to be in the city and we happened to have a meeting scheduled. And so we did a in-person meeting. But yeah, I, I consider myself competent <laughs> at working with people remotely, which I think is a super valuable skill for freelancers to have because of how it sort of expands their potential market to the entire planet or the entire right. part of the planet that, that they have a language in common with. It's kind of funny. I would think since you live relatively close, certainly closer than most people to San Francisco, Silicon Valley, that clearly most of your work would be in person. Right. So, so, sorry to interrupt, but especially because my focus is on custom software development shops, right? There's tons of those in San Francisco. Uh, I mean, that ecosystem has a very strong presence there. You would think I'd just be focusing on that geography. But I've made, uh, I mean, to be honest, other than one or two sort of half-hearted marketing attempts to sort of reach that market, I've made zero effort to try to reach that plump, juicy uh, San Francisco market. And I, I'm perfectly happy continuing that way. I just, I think it's working just fine treating my market as the entire English-speaking world. Right. 
I mean, I've been doing remote consulting now for more than 20 years. I and mean, my, my story, as I've told, I think, a few times in the podcast, is that I was working for Time Warner and was planning to move to Israel and try consulting. And my bosses there said, well, when you move to Israel, why don't you just, like, we'll be your first client. So I more or less got off the plane and had a client. And this was in 1995 when international phone rates, especially from Israel, were crazy high. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> it was like more than a dollar a minute to call on the phone. And I was actually in a local newspaper as this like this guy who works from home for people in America. Oh, my God, how can that be possible? <laughs> and so I've always had this like a mix of remote and in-person clients. Yeah. Um, it's never been 100% one way or the other. Nowadays, my training is mostly in person, yeah. uh, although I do do some online training here and there. And I'm hoping to ramp that up in the next year or so. But, you know, in a given week, let's say out of five working days, I'm probably, you know, three to four days on site mm -hmm. and then dealing with one or two remote clients as well. Mm. But I'm definitely, I, I definitely feel comfortable. I've had no small number of clients who I've either never met in person or met in person just because I happened to be in their city and it was convenient for us to meet rather than like us having to meet in person. That's interesting. So do you perceive any difference between a local and a remote client? Do you run those engagements differently or? Interesting. Yeah, I guess I do. I mean, I guess with a, you know what? No, I'm going to take that back. I don't think I actually do. Uh -huh. I think the feeling is different, right? You get more bandwidth in an in-person conversation than you'll ever get with Skype or Hangouts or anything like that, even with the most amazing technology, right? Like, like meeting someone face-to-face definitely gives you sort of more of a feel for them. But I always sort of have an introductory conversation. It's certainly more convenient if it's remote than if I have to go out to their office and meet with them for an hour. And we sort of talk about the same things. I think I try to keep it roughly the same. Although, you know, if I'm on site, I, I'm sort of both personally curious and I think it's also good politics. And I sort of like, you know, get a tour of the company and find out more about them and sort of see what they're like, which is not really possible remotely. Yeah, I, I suppose it becomes a bit of a logistical challenge to get more than one person in front of a Skype. I don't know. I, I mean, have you noticed it, whether it's more difficult to schedule meetings with remote clients or is it? easier to get people to agree to come into a conference room if you're local? Any differences um, like that? I don't think there's much of a difference. I mean, people are sort of hard to schedule no matter what. And in fact, online, it means that you can sort of, you have a little more flexibility because people can be in different places. So, I mean, I've got this one client I've been with for years in Chicago where we have a weekly phone meeting and it's a brutal hour for everyone because I'm in Israel and my employees also and they're in Chicago. So we do it at 10 p.m. their time and 6 a.m. our time. So everyone's equally unhappy, but that, but it means basically everyone's at home. Like no one's at the office at that hour. And so, you know, we can be at home more traveling and we can still dial into the, the, you know, the call. Whereas if it had to be on site, it'd be an extra thing we would have to figure out you know, who's around and where. Right. Right. You know, I think the, the biggest time zone difference, let's see, I think Spain and Germany are in the same time zone or if, if they're not, they're maybe one hour apart. So, that's about as far east as I think that I've gone with a client where I'm doing, you know, sort of frequent video calls to check in. And, and again, I'm in, I'm in California, so that gives you a sense of how far I can go east. And then I had someone from Singapore approach me. That's like the farthest west. And that was or, or further east, <laughs> I guess, depending on how you think about it. Right. But actually, no, no, I have a client who is in, I think, Vietnam. Yeah. So that's like the farthest, the other direction because my calls with him tend to be when he wakes up the next day and it's like around five or six o'clock my time. So, I mean, that's pretty substantial coverage. I'm not the greatest with world geography, so I don't know what time zones would be out of reach. But I, I guess the reason I say that is I'm just blown away with how much flexibility being able to work remotely gives me. And there's just very few times when I have encountered a situation with the kind of work that I do, which is like marketing consulting work where I feel hampered or hindered by the inability to meet with a client, you know, face-to-face, one-on-one. Because I pretty much, I, pretty much refuse to get on an airplane for, <laughs> for a client work. At the, at the price point I'm working, it just doesn't make sense economically. I could see that with client, much larger yeah. projects. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. Go ahead. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I, I, I can do the same for you. So, so there. I had a client actually in California in, um, I'm trying to remember what it's called, just outside of San Francisco also. Okay. Starts with an A. Anyway, so I worked with him for probably like four or five years. 
and he was doing better and better. And he said, tell you what, it would be great to meet you in person and show you around. I'll fly you out here for a few days. Uh-huh. So we met in person, like literally after years of working together and talking on the phone probably every day for an hour. Uh-huh. It was fun. Like it was fun for us to get to know each other in greater depth. Yeah. And probably did help to cement the relationship more. But if we had never done that, and I certainly have clients where I've never met them in person, right? Like we also had good relationships and things worked. I still think there's like an advantage to meeting in person, but I don't think it's a deal breaker not to in the slightest. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a very interesting question. The question being, is there a some kind of project or some kind of client services work that just would not work remotely? And I'm sure there is. I'd love for to define for our listeners maybe what that might be. But honestly, I just can't think of what would just not work. I mean, you do training and you do that largely in person. And I do think that that kind of training that you're doing benefits from an like a a full resolution environment where you're there and you can look people in the eye and sort of, you know, look at their body language and all that stuff really helps, I think. Right. So I actually, I've done a bunch of online trainings using WebEx. Mm -hmm. And what typically happens is you can tell that half to two thirds of the people have you in like a corner of their screen while they're checking email or Facebook or, Uh or whatever. And so I think the last two times I've done courses with WebEx, I, I want to say demanded, but I wasn't very successful at it. <laughs> I, I begged them <laughs> to turn on their own cameras. Right. Because there was one course where I did it where literally no one turned on their camera. And it was me talking to my computer for two days straight. And it was just bizarre for, for me. Certainly. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and the moment that they turned on their cameras, then I did get that sort of feedback. And you're right. It's not the same sort of resolution bandwidth that you get in a classroom face-to-face. Right. But it was so much better. I could see the puzzled looks on their faces. I could see their like the smiles when they got the the exercises right, and just it felt like closer to a real classroom environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even in just software development today, everyone you know you're in the same office as other people, and yet what are you using? You're using Slack. <laughs> you're using GitHub. You're using all these tools that are you know as the as the kids like to say in the cloud. Right. Meaning, like. Who cares if you're in the office or at home? You're still using the same darn tools. That's a good point. I suppose that's one of the things that has really facilitated. uh, When I think about what makes my entire way of making a living possible, it's high bandwidth Internet, like the the sort of wide availability and penetration of high bandwidth or broadband Internet. But, you know, good enough for like a doesn't have to be an HD quality video chat, but it has to be good enough that there's not lags or delays and and so forth, right? Like that's, to me, sort of the prerequisite. And I actually lived in a place in rural Oregon for a couple of years that did not have that, and it was incredibly limiting. So I've sort of been on both sides of that. So there's that, and then there's things like, it just constantly blows my mind, Reuven, that the, the main tool I use for communicating with clients is Skype uh, video chats. And mm-hmm. I pay like $3 a month. And that's not even, I don't even pay that for the video chat. I pay that so I can call landlines from Skype. Right. Me too. Right. Right. <laughs> so well, right. so this $3 a month tool is like my mission critical business enabler <laughs> thing. That's what blows my mind about Skype. You're probably not this way, but a huge number of Americans, like dialing internationally for them is like dialing the moon more or less. Like what? Where do I even start? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> So the fact that I have, like, so I not only have Skype and use it all the time, but I have a U.S. phone number. And this, this sort of, I, I'd like to think at least, calms my U.S. clients down and tells them I can be anywhere in the world. In fact, even when I'm traveling, when I'm in Europe and in China, like, if I'm connected to Skype, that number will ring on my computer. So they have a U.S. number they can reach me at. They don't need to worry about international dialing codes or fees. It's probably free for them to call me. And I think, I think I'm paying like $5 a month because it includes the phone number. But again, it's just like a laughably small expense for a major technology cornerstone of what I do. Right. Yeah. Some of the tools that are available for, you know, let's say your budget for these kind of tools was like 50 bucks a month. That gives you access to tools that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, Fortune 500 companies would have had to pay ten, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a month to operate, right? If not more. That's right. It's just, it's phenomenal. We should probably touch on project management in a moment. I think we'll both have something interesting to offer there. But just the communication tools alone are 
different categories of things. And, and, it, and, and it's not like there's just one good one. Uh, I mean, I, I have I always have a backup. So if Skype's not behaving well, which is rare, but it does happen, uh, I use Zoom. Like that's a tool that that's a video conferencing tool that I, uh, ironically, I pay $15 a month for that uh, <laughs> just to have a backup to Skype. So I pay more for that. I pay more for my backup than I do for the primary thing. But like there's just dozens of decent, if not very good, if not great, you know, communication tools that are available just that anybody can sign up on a month by month basis to to use. Right. Absolutely. I mean, we when, when I, I guess it was like two years ago, three years ago already, I had to get my uh, elder daughter a cell phone plan. And um, this was when there was a huge like revolution in cell phone prices in Israel. So uh, I was at the booth and I signed up like for her phone and for a plan. As I'm walking away, they said, oh, right, we forgot to mention to you, it's free to call 90 countries. I was like, is that a by the way sort of thing to sell me on? <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it's true. And so it's really been amazing that basically like if Skype goes down for me, well, I just call for my cell phone and it's free. Yeah, And it's like shocking, but it makes life so much easier for me that, oh, I have a client in such such a place, usually the US or Canada. Fine. I'll just give them a call. Like I, I don't even have to think about it anymore. Whereas, right, years ago, it was a crazy expense or you just didn't have access to it, right? The fact that I can be, I can get off the train somewhere, wherever it is in the world and reach a client and talk to them. There were times 10, 15 years ago when I needed that and didn't have it. Yeah. There's this idea of the network effect, you know, the more the classic example is fax machines. It's like if you're the only person in the world who has a fax machine, the value of that fax machine is very low because <laughs> you can't do anything useful with it. But the more people you can fax, the, the more valuable it becomes to have a fax machine. That's the network effect. And the same sort of thing. I mean, I, to me, the Internet is the ultimate example of that. And, you know, the more devices that are connected to the Internet, the more valuable it becomes. I think that I'm not really sure where I was going with that, except to say that it's just it's really interesting because I think we've gotten to the point where when I think about remote work like 10 years ago, it would be, okay, you'd have to have a funky login for some funky project management system that was hosted either by you or your client. And it just was kind of a, a real pain compared to what it is now where you could use Basecamp. And chances are that, you know, your client is working with other uh, vendors who use Basecamp or other people who use Basecamp. And so they're not like there's kind of a little network effect that Basecamp has built up around itself where it's not weird or off-putting or a showstopper to tell your client, okay, I'd like to, we're going to run this project on Basecamp. And that's where, what, what we're going to use for our project management system. And I think there's certain tools that have kind of built up that network effect. That's really where I was going with this. Right. So tools like Dropbox, I think are no longer weird and scary unless you're working with a client who has some pretty tight compliance or legal restrictions that they have to adhere to. Then there could be an issue with them using a tool like that, and maybe they're going to make you use their corporate box.net account, for example. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been there, it sounds like. I had a client I, like I, that. I, think I had a very, very short experience with Box uh, when Northwestern like decided to move to that and not drop Box. Right. And... After that short, horrific experience, everyone in our research group basically begged my advisor to protest. And he said, we are not going to use this. We want to use Dropbox. And somehow, probably because he's good at bullying people into things, my advisor managed to beat them up and got them to uh, cave in. Wow. Got the IT department to, to back down. That's yeah. a pretty big <laughs> achievement. I'm guessing he had to use research funds to pay for it then, right? They had to, they basically allowed him to spend money on it more or less. Yeah. That's my guess. Yeah. I mean, so things like Dropbox or Google Drive seem to be pretty safe bets for sharing files with clients. And, and again, I can just remember not that long ago when there, when these the tools weren't around, it was like, how am I going to hand off deliverables to clients without emailing them? as attachments, which, you know, could be an option for small stuff. But if you're handing off like a DVD image or something, that's not that's just not an option. Now it's like your problem is narrowing down the dozens of options rather than, you know, I mean, you have dozens of solutions. So you're, the difficulty is choosing the right one rather than, uh, you know, not having that thing you need to get the job done remotely. It's just really interesting how much more flexible remote work has become. Right. Although I still, and maybe this just like demonstrates age or stubbornness, many time for large files, 
Like instead of using Dropbox or something, I'll just load it up to my web server and put it under a URL that no one else can guess. Uh-huh. And I'll uh-huh. email that to them and say to people, here, download this. But like that's becoming increasingly tiresome and primitive when there are many other options available. So have you ever gotten pushback to working remotely where a client wants to hire you, but is but the fact that you're remote is a deal breaker? Sort of. I got a lot of pushback from people in the U.S. worried that I'm not in the U.S. and so I can't work with them. Parts of it were time zone issues. Parts of it were, well, we need to meet with you on a regular basis issues. And so they figured, well, if I'm in the U.S., then you know it'll be easier for me to do that. But the irony is, you know, these places would be, let's say it's in New York, they wouldn't have any problem hiring someone in California, even though what are the odds of someone jumping on a flight from California to New York? Yes, it's easier. They're more frequent flights, but it's not that different. Well, and uh, if, so if, I, if you're in New York and hiring somebody in California, you know, good luck getting them on the phone before 10, 11 a.m. your time anyway, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. That's true. That's very true. So I've gotten pushback on that. And uh-huh. so... For a long time, I would say to people, yes, but I'm a U.S. citizen, and I keep crazy hours, and I work with people for years. And I still sometimes say that, but it's rare nowadays. Like now, in part because I'm mostly doing training, in part because I've got enough of a flow of clients of various sorts that I I feel like I don't need to beat them up over it. But yeah, it's definitely happened. Some people just aren't into the remote working thing. I'm trying to think if, if I've ever gotten pushback on that, and I cannot remember someone saying, Philip, we'd like to work with you, but you know, you're not local. I think they just don't approach me if if that's the case. I I don't think I've ever had a deal not go through or a client not hire me for that reason, which I find really interesting. Maybe I'm doing a good job of qualifying clients or maybe I'm doing something wrong. I don't know. But um, (laughs) well, I keep seeing like I I get your newsletter and I read it and it would be hard for me to imagine contacting you to hire you and saying, oh, and by the way, you got to fly to my office like one, once a week to have our coaching session. Right, right. right? Like, <laughs> I might be able to get away with that if I were in Silicon Valley or something, or I might think I could get away with that. But I can't get over the fact that like you're so close to Silicon Valley and yet you do everything remotely. And you know, the other example I can think of of someone who was very successful remotely is, of course, Patrick McKenzie, who points out that for many years he was in the middle of Nowheresville, Japan, and had clients all over the world. So we've got like two extremes demonstrating it doesn't really matter where you are physically. You can still have clients around the world and still have a successful practice, and people will still want to work with you. I think this is where I need to deliver my sermon about commoditization because I, I feel like people who have rely uh, people, okay, freelancers, self-employed people. And by the way, I, sh- I should say that I'm not speaking to people who require physical proximity. Like, you know, if you're going to hire a, you know, a self-employed person to prepare meals for you, they need to be, <laughs> they need to be, you know, it, it just doesn't work so well for them to be like FedEx overnighting your, your lunch for tomorrow today. So there's obviously situations where, Physical proximity does matter. So I'm not really speaking to that type of work. You're not going to hire a dog walker from New York if you live in California. But I think the ever-increasing number of situations where the proximity is not critical, people who are in high-cost-of-living areas, like myself, who have relied on physical proximity as like their competitive advantage, I think are going to face increasing pressure from low-cost-of-living areas, either in the same country or you know across uh, nation-state borders, they're going to face increasing pressure because those people have a cost advantage. And when they can build trust remotely, when they learn how to do that and when they have the necessary skills to deliver the results, the reason for hiring somebody you know, local kind of goes away. So I think that makes a very bright future for people in lower cost of living areas who can you know, kind of embrace the tools that the Internet provides them. The reason I even went on that sermon is because I'm kind of curious, Reuben, is there any kind of cost of living advantage to living in Israel? I, I have to profess <laughs> ignorance. I don't know. No. I'm just curious. No. no. Okay. So typically, Israeli salaries are lower than European and American ones, uh-huh. and the cost of most things is higher. Okay. So I guess in that sense, it's it's sort of like <laughs> it, it's closer to Europe in that sense. Right. So that people aren't earning quite as much. In high tech, the salaries are now, I'm guessing, around two thirds to three quarters what they are in the US. Okay. At least like for most people. So it's not bad, but like the cost of housing, cost of other stuff is very high. So it used to be that hiring Israeli engineers was a big advantage for these multinationals because mm-hmm. they were getting high quality talent for low price. Right. 
And now they see it as like hiring someone in Chicago, San Francisco, New York. Okay, like this is just part of the cost of doing business. But if we can offload it to our people in India or in China or in Russia, then we will do that. Right, right. Which, I mean, sort of reinforces your point about how a lot of these engineers, you know, if you have been doing Java for 15 years and you are the greatest Java engineer ever, you're in trouble, right? Because people who are, I just said, half your age and half your price or less. I mean, I, I did some had some conversations with people in China. And despite the fact that Shanghai is crazy expensive, People there are earning like half of what they do in Israel or a third of what they do in Israel. How they survive, truth be told, is beyond me. Mm. Companies are just lapping this up, right? Because they can hire people for way, way less than in the U.S. And so making it clear that you're not just the world's greatest Java programmer, but you're the greatest Java programmer who knows how to solve these sorts of problems will make all the difference. Because then you can't just go and train your replacement. They will keep you around and other people like you. And the people working under you or with you will be the commodity folks working abroad. Right. Yeah. The sort of physical proximity is becoming less and less of a competitive advantage, which means that you have to find other ways to stand apart. Right. Although there is one place where physical proximity helps. And I'm not just talking about government and defense mm -hmm. sort of work. It's language. So if you are dealing with stuff that's just like, you know, if you're working for a big multinational corporation and you're just doing internal programming, then it doesn't really matter. But if you work in a country like Israel, where the language is spoken by a small number of people, mm -hmm. then you might have an advantage there. Although, much to my surprise, the Polish women who are in charge of Cisco's accounting have extremely fluent Hebrew. I cannot figure out for the life of me <laughs> how this happened. But they said, oh, yes, please continue to email us in Hebrew so we can practice. So like, even then, some of these seemingly border-reinforcing things are not nearly as reinforcing as you might have expected. Yeah, I mean, from a sort of larger perspective, there's, I think there's a lot of things that people perceive as kind of a fatal weakness in their business that they can grow around or they can compensate for. So, you know, language skills is one of those things. I mean, obviously, it's much easier if you're a seven-year-old kid <laughs> to acquire a second language. That's just a, a sort of hardwired advantage. But even if you're a 40-year-old dude, I, I think you could if it was giving you access to some lucrative market, might be worth taking some language classes and, and becoming conversant or fluent, you know, in a language that maybe that's the one thing you're lacking from a, a remote work perspective is language skills. Because that is huge to trust building is, is being able to communicate effectively. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I can tell you from last week when I was in Shanghai, opening my course in Chinese, despite my terrible accent and grammar, boy, oh boy, that like went a long way toward building trust. Yeah. Um, not to mention knocking the socks off them. Yeah, you're, uh, you're in. You're in. You say you say a couple <laughs> sentences in Chinese, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, this guy's our new best friend." <laughs> also, like being able to communicate means you're not, you know, again, you're not that, you know, the world's best Java programmer. Now you're someone who has these skills of interpersonal, international, intercultural communication, mm -hmm. who can really help them out. Yeah. So I think that raises a couple interesting questions. One, you know, when you're working remote, do you communicate differently than if you're physically proximate to your client? And second, should you market yourself in your primary language or, you know, some other language? I guess that second question is kind of a no-brainer. You should market yourself in the language of, of the market you're trying to reach, right? Well, what about that first question? Do you do anything, Reuven, do you do anything differently when you're working local versus remote in terms of your communication frequency or style or anything like that? It's probably much more frequent when I'm on site just because I'm there and I'm talking to them. Yeah. Right? As opposed to, oh, yeah, they're in that Slack window. I should really get back to them. Or, oh, yeah, they sent me an email. Mm -hmm. right? it's, it's easier to forget the person who's not sitting in front of you and you're talking to them, pointing at a computer together or in front of a whiteboard. Okay, so you're talking about asynchronous remote communication, which is different, I think, than synchronous oh. remote communication, like, you know, getting on a video call, for instance. That's Good point. synchronous Good point. remote. So, right, so, so if it's synchronous, like if I'm in a meeting remotely as opposed to in a meeting uh, in person, I say the only major disadvantage from, from my perspective is the lack of a whiteboard. Uh-huh. I love using whiteboards to draw things out, even though like my drawing skills are terrible. Yeah. So it looks ugly, but people sort of get it. It's yeah. like, like Pictionary with chicken scratch. So, so that I think has been missing. But otherwise, I think my the communication is pretty similar. I mean, how about, how about you? 
I don't have anything to compare it to because <laughs> it's been so long <laughs> since I've had local clients. I think what I realized, though, was even with local clients, I wasn't uh, working on site at their office and I kind of uh, like resented the travel time, even with local clients to like go into a me big meeting in the office. I was like, why aren't we having this remotely? So I always kind of had a strong predisposition in favor of remote work, even if the client's in the same town as me or same city. But here's the thing I have found with any kind of client is like the more regular the communication. So like video brief daily video calls is my preference. Just the better. It just makes everything go better. It reduces miscommunications. It reduces like, oh, I thought you were supposed to be doing this kind of stuff, you know, misunderstandings. It just fixes a, a multitude of ills. That's my one sort of recommendation and global takeaway for people who are working remotely is more synchronous communication. And I'm not talking about like having two hour meetings. I'm just like frequently every day, if you can have a brief check in. I, of course, there's certain things where that would not make sense. Like if a project goes idle for a couple of weeks, for some reason, there's no point in getting on the phone every day or getting on a video chat every day to to say, well, nothing's changed since yesterday. <laughs> but, you know, when things are happening, I think that frequent communication is just amazing. It, it's a good trust builder. And it, I think it reduces the number of problems you have dramatically. So that's what I found with respect to communication. Granular, frequent, synchronous communication. And then, you know, if there's something that needs to be recorded for future reference, then that's when I like to use something asynchronous like a, you know, project management tool or, or email or, or whatever. Slack, you know, instant message mm -hmm. type stuff is also great for, for the kind of quick asynchronous stuff. It's weird. I don't know if that's an age thing. I used to hate it when someone was like, hey, let's just get on a call. But now I find myself saying, hey, let's just get on a call and <laughs> figure this out that way. <laughs> I definitely like it. And sometimes like, there's a limit as to how much you can type before it's just easier. You know, and, and you're waiting and then you're interpreting and you're typing back before it's easier just to like get on a call. And it's often resolved within a few minutes. I think I must have passed some kind of threshold of like, you know, like the, my lifetime counter of regrettable misunderstandings happening <laughs> via, uh, you know, asynchronous written communication must have passed some kind of magic threshold. And it made me an, into an old man who's just like, you know, let's just get on the phone. It'll be quicker and we won't misunderstand each other. Yeah. We just had in the last 48 hours, 24 hours, this project, this company where I'm the part-time CTO, where there's been this whole discussion about what's on which branch in Git. And we had so much email go back and forth, especially I went to bed last night and my employee and the, the other developer like kept hashing it out and even like had some harsh words for each other. I wake up and I see they've made nice and things are resolved. But I think if they just like talk to each other or if I had been there and talked to them with them like 10 minutes, everyone would have been much happier. Um, and I wish I'd realized that a little earlier. And, I, you know, I think about the mindset that kept me f avoiding the phone and I was just like, oh, it's I don't know. I mean, I, I looked at it as a sort of inferior way. I, I looked at written communication as more clear. And then again, something happened and I just sort of reversed my viewpoint on that. And I really don't know what it was. I, I mean, I had a couple mem memorable, terrible miscommunications that you know, <laughs> could have been avoided by getting on the phone. So yeah, it's, it's just, it's interesting. I guess that's one thing to keep in mind when you're selecting remote clients is, is it possible under any circumstance to get on the phone? Like, are you sleeping during the hours when they're awake and at work? Or, you know, I, I guess that rules out certain remote work scenarios. Here's if a you can set up a regular one also, like if you yeah. can say every, even if it's like twice a week, at the, on these days, this even once a week, this day, this hour, we're going to talk. Right. Right. And it, it, it makes you much more of a tangible asset to their company and, and makes you a much closer part of the team, I think. Here's a question. How do you find remote clients? I mean, I have some ideas, of course, but I think that's a question people will be asking if they're like, okay, maybe I don't have to work just locally. Maybe I can try uh, working for a remote client. Like, how do you start? How do you find that first remote client, especially if the remote client's in a higher cost of living area, used to paying higher rates, that could actually be very attractive and, and sort of a question of like how people break into that market. I, right. think, I think you've got to find some way to build trust and, and get in front of them. But I'm curious about your thoughts on that, Ruben. I've been bad at it, to tell you the truth. Like the two longest term best clients I ever had, remote, 
I found them both on Elance, now Upwork, and they were amazing clients. I have nothing bad to say about them. I really enjoy working with them, but they were flukes, right? Like the, the amount of time that I actually invested in pitching to people on Elance, like, I guess it sort of worked out if I've had, you know, a decade or so of work between them, decade and a half even between them. But boy, oh boy, I must like, that was like the 1%, the 0.5% mm. that actually came back to help me. And I tried all sorts of things, you know, job boards and whatever. And I think if I had it to do all over again, because now people, like every so often people come to me with remote work, like these people just this week I was talking to you about before we started recording, like they come to me. So it's easier for me. I think if I were starting over again, I would sort of blog more and have the sorts of things that you've talked about a lot, which is a lot of content marketing, a lot of specific, these are the sorts of problems that I solve. Even some, some initial information, right? Hey, you have this sort of problem. Let me help you out a little bit here to build that trust. Yeah. And I think the other thing I do is something I haven't done to my mailing list ever, which is say, hey, you need some help? I actually have some free time in another two months. And if you have a big enough mailing list, and big enough is probably even like a few hundred people, you don't need much more than that for someone somewhere to say, oh, well, I don't have work, but my friend does. Yeah, I think starting out... There's a couple ways starting out. I mean, I have a, a number of mentoring students who are non-U.S. markets, and sometimes, you know, they have access to the kind of the work they're looking for in their local market. But as they start to narrow down their focus, they need to sort of look at a more global or regional market rather than just, you know, if I'm in Germany, I'm just going to find German clients, or if I'm in Israel, I'm just going to find Israeli clients. So that's one way is to sort of narrow your market vertical and become a specialist in working for that market vertical. And you can start to market specifically, like you can maybe go to a couple conferences that are for that market vertical, or you can start submitting guest posts for publications that are for that vertical. And you can sort of take the position, you know, the narrow position, content market driven approach to sort of breaking outside of your local geographical area. Like that's one way. And, and job boards are another way, you know, things like Upwork. And there's one called WeWorkRemotely.com, which was, I think, started by the, the 37 Signals folks. You know, so that's another option is to kind of go to a marketplace where people are advertising work and, and do everything you can to make your remoteness not a factor in their decision and make your expertise and your dedication to customer service and, and all of that stuff, make that the factor that they decide on. And then the other way is to, you know, focus on a problem domain so that you're, you kind of become, build up some expertise in solving a particular kind of problem. And that can be a, an easy way to become sought out no matter where you live, right? Is kind of become the expert on whatever problem, you know, like I'm working with a, with a guy now who, who specializes in computer vision. Like that's a very cool you know, deep and complex and interesting problem domain that, you know, you become a specialist in that and you can start to work, you know, pretty much anywhere in the world that you've got a language overlap with. So right. uh, those, those are some ways. I mean, I, I know that's kind of a little bit on the abstract level. I guess referrals would be the other way that I would try to point out to people that they can get remote work is get that sort of first anchor client in a remote market and then really try to encourage that client to refer you to other people, assuming you do good work. That's another way to, to start getting more and more remote clients. Right. And, and they might be remote to you, but they're local to many other people. And they probably know other business owners where they are. Yeah. Uh, might be interested in having your work. I mean, I've, I've had that a few times where people refer me to other, other folks in their neck of the woods. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned before we should talk about project management, and I, I agree. What, what sort of project management tools or techniques have you used that seem to work well with your remote clients? I've settled on Trello because, again, I'm working with a lot of primarily with custom software development shops or individual developers. And more and more, they're used to a sort of Kanban style Trello slash whatever, you know, pivotal tracker style way of, of tracking tasks. And so I've just adopted that. And, you know, Trello is kind of universal enough that even if my client uses something like Pivotal Tracker, they don't, they're not like, ugh, Trello. You know, they, they sort of, they can work with it. And so it's kind of that nice sweet spot Goldilocks type solution for the clients that I work with. I have in the past used Basecamp 
And I know this is going to come across as like, what's what's wrong with this guy? But I cannot stand Basecamp. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> you I know, mean, I mentioned Basecamp earlier. I was thinking to myself, I'm not such a big Basecamp fan, but I guess I'm just in a small minority. I, I feel like I just, I, I don't get how they conceived of the product. And I just feel like they, they have a certain viewpoint that works marvelously. I mean, the success of the product is undisputable. And, and the fact that it works so well for so many people is, I'm not, saying those people are wrong. I'm saying I, I don't know why it doesn't work for me, but it doesn't. I just like, I guess, a more visual sort of process oriented, you know, things moving through different stages of completion type of approach. And so Trello works great for me. As There's another one that's called Asana that I loved for a while because it lets you get just way into this sort of granular breakdown of tasks. And it had an amazing sort of keyboard shortcut system that made it very fast to navigate through. It's a super solid tool. I just, you know, kind of adopted it briefly and then it fell into disuse because here's the thing. If a tool lets me make things too complicated, it is guaranteed to not work for me. So I need something with some kind of built-in limitations. Again, that should make Basecamp a great choice for me, but for some reason it, it didn't stick. So that's uh, that's how I do it. How about you? So first of all, I'm doing something now. I hired someone to help me with uh, marketing of my regex book. And so he's using, he's using Basecamp. So I've had a chance. I guess I've used it with some other clients in the past year or two, but maybe they've changed their styling. I, I actually, it's better, but I still don't see it as a, like a, wow, amazing. I really got to use this. Like the things that are going for Basecamp are, it's really easy to use. Right. So for non-technical clients, it's great. Yeah. And it does some simple things like, you know, messaging and to-do lists. But, you know, I couldn't put my finger on what I didn't like about it until you just said it now, which is I like the idea of moving things through a process. Yeah. Right. It's I've got a backlog of things like the, the sort of agile sort of thing. I, you know, I've, got, I've got a backlog. I've got the things I'm doing now. I've got the things that have been checked off. And I, I wish Basecamp had that. So mm. for like one on one, this guy doing my marketing with me. It's actually been pretty good. Yeah. For larger groups, it's okay. <laughs> I've used a whole bunch of things in the past, and nothing really grabs me. I hate to say, Trello. I guess it's okay. I, I've used it a tiny bit. I guess it's it's like too freeform in some ways from for my liking. Where I just haven't had the chance to. I don't have the time to invest in making it do exactly what I want. My guess is, if I were to invest in that or think about how I use it, it would be really good. I just was introduced literally this week from one of my clients. We are using GitHub for the software development and GitHub issues. I was sort of against using that actually to keep track of our issues because it's a bit of a mess. Mm -hmm. It's, I guess in some ways like Basecamp in that sense. Mm -hmm. And we've been using for a long time, uh, Redmine, which is really simple. It's really plain and it totally did the job. Mm -hmm. So I saw moving to GitHub issues as a bit of a, a step back. And so someone introduced me to something called a Zen hub. And ZenHub is this browser plugin that gives you a Kanban, Redmine, whatever you want, agile view of your GitHub issues. It's like it talks to GitHub and then it has its own metadata. Huh. So you basically sort of get to pretend that GitHub has the interface that they should have created. If only they had the money to do so. Ha -ha. Uh, <laughs> um, I just can't figure out what the deal is with that there, but... <laughs> So that is actually starting to make me feel like there might be some hope for the, the GitHub issues thing. But a task tracker of any sort, any sort I found is just invaluable, partly because of the social pressure it creates, hmm. right? You have pressure to do the things that have been assigned to you. And when you're done with it, you're then putting pressure on someone to approve it. Hmm. And I had a situation probably like 15 years ago already where I had a client and they insisted they had done all sorts of things. And my people insisted, no, they had not. Uh -huh. And this created some really bad blood. And the moment we installed the task tracker, poof, those problems disappeared because it was very obvious. Like it was, well, it was tracking the tasks. It was saying who's doing what, when. Mm. So anything is better than nothing, I'd say. And, and actually that really helps to increase the communication. So like if you're not talking every day, the fact that you're getting these notes from whatever tracking system it is saying, this is done, this is ready for approval, this is rejected, it needs to be done a new time, would be good. Mm -hmm. I used Pivotal Tracker back in the days when it was free and I was a cheapskate. Well, that, <laughs> that hasn't changed. I'm still a cheapskate. But even the interface that they had a few years ago was really quite amazing. So if it's anything close to that and you can afford it, it's probably worth looking into. That's great. 
What have we missed? What's a critical issue for remote work that we've not touched on? Oh, here's a, here's a question that Luca had in his uh, original issue. Like, which software tools can you expect customers to be familiar with or have installed? And he also asks about communication techniques like leading discussions. And he even says sharing drawings and sketches like on a whiteboard. Do you have any sort of whiteboard solution? I ask selfishly. I do not. I remember there was a Mac app. Uh, I should try to dig this up. That would let you sort of use your entire computer display as a whiteboard. So if you imagine it, just kind of put a transparent overlay on your entire desktop and let you write on it. So, of course, if you're sharing your desktop during a video call of some sort, you could use this tool to, you know, annotate stuff or draw squiggly lines or what have you. But it wasn't a like a persistent whiteboard. I know that Google Docs, I think, may have something like that. That's like one of the add-ins that you can sort of add into a shared Google Doc and, and work on collaboratively. I think you're right, yeah. And I know that Dropbox, I, th I think, has started to add some collaborative document editing functionality. This is the biggest surprise to me because I, I've got plenty of problems with how Google does things, but Google Drive and Google Docs has sort of slowly started to take over for me. Like, I, it was never something where I sat down and said, okay, I must decide today between using Google Docs and Google Drive. I use them both. But I have found just Google Docs sort of slowly taking over for some reason. Like, it, I appreciate the, the functionality, and it just kind of has seeped into various crevices of my business in ways that I never really planned for or expected. So, I mean, to that question about, like, whiteboarding, I don't have a great answer, but I think Google Docs may have part of an answer and uh, just anything that lets you share your screen and, and then draw on it could be potentially a, you know, a useful tool. I remember some sort of, uh, eh, I can't think of it right now. There was a, a sort of collaborative drawing app that I, I was exposed to a couple of years ago that seems to still be around. That might be a, a partial solution. I don't have a great solution. And it sounds like you don't either, Reuven. Am I? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not something I need all the time, but mm -hmm. when I need it, I feel like I really need it. And especially teaching online, you know what? I think I, I found that in WebEx there was some sort of whiteboard. It took me a while to find it mm -hmm. under the various menus, and once I found it, I, I used it quite a bit. Yeah, I can't remember if it was good or if it was just built in, so I knew I could use it. Yeah, and oh, you know, in terms of other software like Join Me, I've used quite a few times with clients for screen sharing or controlling their their computer. Most recently with my nephew, uh, who needed some help with his computer. And I was like, well, why don't we just do join me? I'll take over your computer. And he was amazed that this was possible. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was great. It was really, really great. Yeah. On the Mac side of things, I, I'm looking at this app. It's called Highlight, just like it, you would think it's spelled. And it lets you draw on the screen on top of whatever is underneath it. You know, so if you've got a web browser window up, you can annotate that and that's an option what, what other tools would we expect people to be familiar with i mean i think increasingly slack is probably one of those um where even the, my non-technical clients seem to use it oh that's interesting and, yeah i think some kind of i mean the, to me the categories of tools uh email <laughs> uh something like skype or you know some some kind of tcp ip based video chat software not necessarily, to me, not necessarily project management software. To me, that's almost in the optional, not mandatory. And then some kind of way to hand off files, at least for the kind of work that I do, those would be the bare minimum that I would expect, expect a client to be familiar with. I would not necessarily expect them to be, like some of my clients use uh, Skype instant messaging instead of Slack, for, for example. And that's a situation where I'm not going to go in and be the Slack evangelist who tries to sell them on the superiority of Slack. That's not what I'm there for. I'm there to deliver a result that's worth hopefully a lot more than I'm getting paid to build it. And so I, I don't have any patience for stuff like, oh, you really need to, you know, you really need to whatever, adopt the tool that I'm using. I just, I don't even try to do that. You know, I would say I've been using Skype more or less since it came out. And I even, like I tried to do a startup a number of years ago. And we almost got funding from the Skype founders in Estonia. Wow. So I learned a ton of cool Skype tricks from them, yeah. which have become like now modern uses. Like, like, you know, I was one of the first people I knew who knew that you could like go back and edit things, for example. Uh. People were like, what'd you do? How'd you do that? <laughs> so I've used Skype for a long time and it 
took me a while, but probably in the last year, I've become convinced that, you know, Slack is really better for instant messaging, sure. if only because like the interface works well on my computer and on my phone, right. where Skype does not. And it, it's, it's funny because I didn't expect that a simple IM system, like who the heck cares what you use, but I actually do think that there's some something superior there. That said, right, going into a client and saying, if you want to work with me, you've got to use the following software is not a, a good way to go. And I, I just to be clear, I used to try to do that. I'd be like, no, no, oh. <laughs> you know, we need to use this. And I would like not argue, but I would make my case for why this tool was better than that. And it just I don't think it added any value in the end. It just was kind of a, a big distraction. Mm hmm. Trying to think what else. Any, uh, I'm just looking through Luca's uh, issue here before we start to wrap up. Mm. Common miscommunication pitfalls to spot or avoid. Not communicating enough. <laughs> yeah. Communicating in uh, the written language word when you should maybe use a, you know, synchronous spoken form of communication. I mean, to me, that that's the root cause of, of all miscommunication. And, and that may be an overly simplistic way to look at it. But I think if you you'll eliminate at least 80% of miscommunication if you if you know when to use asynchronous written versus synchronous spoken. What about you, Ruben? Yeah. What, what do you think? I agree completely. I also, I've never had a client complain that I communicate too much, mm -hmm. but I've definitely had clients complain or either explicitly or implicitly that they haven't heard from me and what the heck is going on. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, th and that's just a great example of not communicating enough. Right. And, and that's why, like, with, with some of my clients, I even say to them, uh, like the, the development clients, consulting clients, I say, if we're going to be working together for a long time, I want to make sure we have an ironclad weekly meeting. And, like, I have this client in Chicago now where we didn't do a weekly meeting for a few months because, like, we were sort of in a lull. And, boy, was that a mistake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? right. Is that when development started up again, then it wasn't a huge priority to restart the meetings. And just in the last few weeks, we've had some tension over what's going on and, and, and where, where do we stand? And so now we've got to sort of not only restart that communication, those weekly meetings, but restart to some degree the trust, which yeah. is really fortunate because we love working together. That's rough. That is definitely rough. You know, it looks like uh, Panic Software has also a, a tool for drawing on your screen. I'll, huh. I'll, I'll, maybe that'll be one of my picks. Sorry, non sequitur. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> Any other suggestions? Uh, ideas? You know, I always try to speak to like the fear. Like if you have fear around doing this, start small. Don't have your first remote consultation be your biggest project ever. <laughs> right? Yes. But also, I, I guess where my mind goes it, for the person who's maybe never done this before is like, how could it make things better? Maybe not at all. I mean, that's certainly an option. But I think I think for a lot of folks, maybe it would reduce the amount of time you spend traveling, or maybe it would give you access to higher rates because you're, you know, kind of getting a toe toehold into a market that can afford higher rates than your local market. Mm -hmm. So those are all at sort of the strategic level of, of running your own business. Those are things that I think that are very worth considering. And then if you decide you want to do it, like, okay, what's the first small step you could take to get there? You know, how could you get your first remote client? By way of conclusion, I guess that's where my head's at. Try it, but start small and right. and communicate a lot. The tools will take care of themselves. That's not the problem anymore. <laughs> There's more tools than you will know what to do with once you start figuring out what you really need. Right. And I, I'd say also, stealing a page or more from your book, if you move into some sort of specialty, then there will be almost by definition fewer people doing that near where you live. But there will be people around the world who are really interested in what you do. And so you're, you're opening the door to those people seeking you out and you being able to have a pretty compelling uh, case to work with you. But those communication skills, like it's always the case, always, always, that someone would rather work with a so-so consultant with great communication skills or so-so developer, let's say, with, so -so, with great communication skills than a great developer with terrible communication skills. Um, so you really, you really have to think about who you're going to talk to, how you're going to talk to them, how to make sure that they are so ecstatic with work by uh, working with you that they'll want to continue doing it and tell their friends. And, um, you know, I turned your theoretically short initial foray into remote consulting into a uh, nice long-term lucrative relationship for everyone. Nice. All right. Let's do some picks then. 
Let's do it. What do you got? Okay, I've got a couple of picks. I, I mean, we've talked a lot about Skype, and it's ubiquitous and super inexpensive. I wanted to pick an alternative tool to that that I have recently started using. It's called Zoom. The website is Zoom. Uh, that's with a Z, Z-O-O-M dot U-S. And there's a free tier, which you know, has some limitations. And then there's like the, you know, the lowest tier, I think it's $15. The lowest paid tier is like 15 bucks a month. And I got turned on to Zoom because I noticed that my clients who were in like overseas locations with less than ideal bandwidth seemed to be using it. So I experimented with it as an alternative to Google Hangouts, which I use for my mentoring calls. And found that in some cases, Zoom really does do better when the bandwidth is not great. And it's sort of more of a traditional kind of teleconferencing design. So it's a little, little bit more like, uh, what's the other one, you know, join.me or I don't know, it just kind of like you install an app on your computer and you can have sort of a, a meeting room that's like, quote unquote, your meeting room. And it's like a persistent meeting room thing. So it's got some interesting differences. And I Again, think that for some scenarios, it could be a little bit more robust than Skype in that it's like suitable to low bandwidth situations, et cetera. And uh, it's got built in stuff like it can record calls for you server side, et cetera, et cetera. So it's worth knowing about if, uh, you know, if you don't love Skype for some reason, it's a nice alternative I've found. So that's my first pick. My next pick is a website called weworkremotely.com. I think it's a little bit more oriented towards full-time jobs than freelancing, but it's a job site that I think is worth knowing about. It's a little bit on the smaller side, but it also seems to be much higher quality than a lot of other job sites I've seen. And then my last pick is, I know Panic Software has a tremendous reputation for making high-quality stuff. So later in the show, I ran across Desktastic, all one word, Desktastic, which lets you draw on your screen. So that, I have not tried it, but that could be an interesting... Uh, screen annotation tool for those doing remote work. That's it. Those are my picks for this week. Excellent. So I'm going to uh, also turn one of the things I mentioned into a pick. Not that I have a huge amount of experience with it, but it looks really great so far, which is uh, ZenHub. ZenHub is that uh, Kanban-style overlay onto GitHub issues. If you and your clients or your company are using GitHub issues, uh, this might help you to make some sense of them. My next pick is uh, this new book called The Confidence Game by, oh, I never remember how to pronounce her name, Maria Kornikova is, I think, her last name. She's a New Yorker writer and frequent guest on the, the, the GIST podcast. And she always looks at psychology. And in The Confidence Game, she talk, looks at con men and cons and how are people swindled so easily. And not only is it like a fun read, I'm only a little bit through it, like, I don't know, 20%, 30% through it at this point, but she's a fantastic storyteller. But she's trying to get to the idea of how are people so easily swindled? Like, what is it that makes people gullible? And what is it that allows people to take advantage of them? How do these things work? And perhaps it's the cynic in me looking at this as I read these stories, but I'm also thinking, okay, how does this overlap with marketing? Like, what can I, should I say to sort of make my clients more at ease so that not because I want to con them or swindle them, but because I, I can sort of attack, you know, we're always looking for pain points and how to fix those pain points. And I think that there's, there's definitely some overlap between the evil use and non-evil use, but understanding where they are can definitely help in uh, marketing yourself. And, and I've been reading it on, I know I'm probably like the last person in the world to get one, but on a Kindle, uh, where after my elder daughter and my younger daughter and my wife all got Kindles and I took them with me when I went abroad, I was like, wow, this is a great piece of technology. So I got a Kindle also, and I am quite enjoying it. Uh, and the last pick is a fun one, probably mostly for the liberals out there. It's called Trumpcast. It's a uh, podcast from uh, Slate Magazine, and it basically is looking at the Donald Trump phenomenon in American politics from all sorts of different angles. People who love him, people who hate him, people who are analyzing him and his policies, or lack thereof. And it's a fun way to look at a fascinating political phenomenon, no matter how you uh, what you think about it. Anyway, those are my picks for this week. And uh, Philip, great as usual to talk to you. I think we might actually be joined by one of our fellow panelists at some point in the near future. So <laughs> listeners, if you hate listening only to us, good news. If you love listening only to us, 
just keep playing this episode again and again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just just so, mute, mute the other parts where other panelists speak right. up. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And we'll be back next week on The Freelancer Show. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.